When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Al Franken, and we've got a tremendous podcast uh, for you today. Franklin Four has been one of the most brilliant progressive American journalists over the last 25 years. And I'm a huge admirer of uh, him from his days at Slate, from its inception. He's been the editor-in-chief of the New Republic uh, a couple times. Franklin now writes cover stories for the Atlantic Monthly and uh, took some time out from the one he's just finishing up right now on Amazon. And he's also done brilliant cover stories on uh, Paul Manafort and on ICE. And actually, we start the conversation really about ICE and these uh, what's behind these new raids. And he's one of the few political journalists who has been writing about big tech and the dangers that it presents and has been doing it in a prescient and very thoughtful way. His latest book, a World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, just won some prestigious international award that I, I, I can't pronounce. And that's what we really care about on, on the Al Franken podcast, prestige. That's primarily what we're going for uh, here on the podcast. So Franklin and I will be talking about the effects of Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, and uh, on the way Americans get their information, uh, how clicks have affected journalism, and how our attentions span, I'm sorry, uh, no, and how our attention span, um, hmm, oh, I'm sorry, I just, I, I was, Looking at my uh, my phone, I got a text message. I'm, I'm babysitting tonight. Well, anyway, uh, hmm, what was I? <sighs> Lost my train. Uh, my dad always said that if you can't remember what you were talking about, it wasn't important in the first place. So. Franklin, Franklin Four. Okay, he's uh, going to be with us. In a moment, but I actually, now that I think of it, I wanted to talk about Secretary Acosta's resignation, but really more about the shady character who is going to be acting Secretary of Labor. That's Patrick Pizzella. Pizzella has been the Deputy Secretary of Labor, a nomination I fought uh, very hard against, because from 1996 to 2001, Pizzella was a lobbyist for Jack Abramoff's firm, the most famously corrupt lobbying firm in the long and 
heralded annals of corrupt lobbying firms. Abramoff and his team did some just terrible things, always on behalf of horrible people. And one of the very worst things they did was lobby on behalf of the garment industry uh, in the northern Mariana Islands in the Pacific. And this is really ugly. And Pizzella was in charge of it. There were sweatshops, 18-hour work days. They recruited poor young women from rural villages in, in China and in the Philippines and told them that they were going to the United States of America. And that's because Mariana Islands had become a territory of the United States. And these women had to pay in order to be flown to the United States. This is thousands of dollars these women had to pay. And if they were short, they could take out a loan, which they could pay off with their unbelievably meager salary. There were also forced abortions, mandatory abortions. There was the forced prostitution. Now, on the other side of the ledger, there were all expense-paid luxury junkets for Republican members of Congress, their staffs, and, and their families, and for right-wing thinkers like Kellyanne Conway, all flying first class to and from the Mariana Islands um, and accommodations at the fancy schmancy Hyatt Regency, uh, golf, tropical drinks with little umbrellas, uh, the whole nine yards. And uh, also you got propaganda from Pizzella, so that when Republican leaders like Tom DeLay returned to Washington, the majority leader would call uh, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, quote, the perfect petri dish for capitalism. Quick history of the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, they're a string of, of, of islands, and they're just north of Guam, to give you some idea of the geography. The biggest island is Saipan, where they had the battle of Saipan, a key battle in World War II, which we, uh, when we won that, we took over the Marianas and controlled it. After the war, the Northern Marianas was under the United States auspices. In 1975, it became a uh, United States territory. The Ford administration wanted to help its economy. So uh, it, it said that businesses there would be able to ship products to the United States without quotas or tariffs or duties. And they could even label stuff made in the USA. And they also wouldn't have to abide by American labor or immigration laws. So it wasn't long before American labels like Ralph Lauren, uh, Brooks Brothers, J. Crew, your uh, Banana Republic, they're all making clothes in Saipan. And who would do the actual work? Well, there were these impoverished young women uh, who had been recruited from China and the Philippines, promised jobs in the United States, and they paid thousands of dollars. And when they they took the flight to the Western Hemisphere, it must have seemed remarkably, like a remarkably short flight. Uh, the women found themselves in Saipan, and they were soon working 18-hour days in sweatshops under horrible, horrible conditions. At night, they'd be locked up 
with hundreds of other women in barracks infested with rats and uh, equipped with one outside toilet for every 50 women. They were allowed out for one hour every Sunday. But many had signed contracts agreeing not to fall in love or have a baby or protest working conditions, and hence the beatings by factory foremen and hence the forced abortions. Those forced abortions sometimes came from a special kind of exploitation. The women who were young and pretty were sent to work at various nightclubs in town catering to tourists who like young, pretty girls. Some of these women owed money for their trip to the United States and were forced into prostitution. I I happened to write about all this back in 2005 in my book, The Truth with Jokes, and all this was very carefully documented by the Clinton Labor Department and by various investigative reporters. Uh, Brian Ross, who uh, uncovered a lot of this for ABC News, uh, did a number of reports on this, and millions and millions of Americans knew about these conditions, but presumably not Patrick Pizzella, because when I questioned him about his work there, he told me that he had not been aware of any of the sordid details. This is odd in a lot of ways. He they lobbied for Willie Tan, who was the biggest manufacturer there and one of the biggest abusers of these uh, women. And uh, that's actually in one of Brian Ross's report, a, a dinner with these congressmen and Willie Tan uh, speaking to them. And this was a dinner Pizzella had organized. I was on the Senate Help Committee, and that's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. And uh, I met with Mr. Pizzella in my office the day before uh, the hearing as a courtesy. I told him I was going to vote against him because of his work in the Marianas, and uh, I was going to ask him about that in the hearing. There were widespread reports at the time that workers faced terrible conditions, including uh, reports of uh, many of these employees were women. Uh, brought from who were told uh, from the Philippines and from China, who were told they were going to America, and they ended up in uh, uh, these jobs in the Northern Marianas Islands, and there were forced abortions, uh, prostitution, and routine beatings. You've been nominated to a position where you'll be closely involved with enforcing minimum wage laws and other worker protections, yet, as we discussed in my office, one of the key issues you lobbied on was to block bipartisan legislation for basic worker protections in the Northern Mariana Islands, where garment manufacturers could produce clothing labeled made in the USA without having to comply with US minimum wage laws. In fact, the Mariana Islands were your firm's largest lobbying client. Obviously, that is a concerning history for someone who will now be charged with enforcing worker protection laws. Were you aware of those horrible conditions even while you lobbied against minimum wage protection for workers? Uh, first of all, Senator, thank you. Uh, uh, you did say you intended to ask the question. I appreciate that in our meeting yesterday. 
and I'm prepared to address the issue. Uh, I was not aware of uh, any such thing. Uh, I did not know, I just learned that 21 of uh, Mr. Abramoff's colleagues were also convicted of wrong. Well, let me just and ask I, you I, was not, I was not one of them. Okay. And I but, just want to be clear about that. I was I never. That. Congratulations. Okay. Thank you. On that. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had been more emphatic about pointing out that he was, was lying, but I assumed that was just obvious to the rest of my colleagues. Maybe I had overlooked the possibility that a few of the Republicans on the committee had gone on on one of those junkets. So here's what I think we should do. I am putting a petition online at alfranken.com that you can add your name to demanding that the House Labor Committee investigate whether Pizzella knew about these abuses in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and lied during his confirmation hearing. This is essentially about lying to poor Asian women, taking their money, putting them into slave labor and forced prostitution and forced abortions. Our acting labor secretary shouldn't have spent four years making sure that Congress didn't change that. So go to alfranca.com and sign the petition. And get your friends to do so as well. Patrick Pazella cannot be our acting secretary of labor. Okay, now let's go to my interview with Franklin Fuller. Friends call you Frank. That's right. So I'm going to call you Frank. Thank you. Uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you. I know you're doing research for your piece right now for the cover story that you're going to do on Amazon. That's right. I may, if I turn in a piece that's not of high enough quality, my editors might not put it on the cover. So you've just uh, raised the stakes for me there. But that's that's the idea. Oh, by announcing that it's yeah, going to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, okay. You if, know, you well... see, if you see the story and it's not on the cover. <laughs> you you'll... can make some judgments about, uh, prejudgments about what you'll get inside. You know, you can only do this for so long before you start kind of losing it. <laughs> so 25 years, that's pretty good. So I read this article on ICE, which is uh, revelatory, and basically said that ICE was, one of the things they were trying to do is just scare the shit out of people. Yeah. Well, and that's that sounds um, maybe like a crude way of describing what they do, but if you go back and read all of the um, the theorists who are at the core of the hardcore anti-immigration hawk community, you'll see that it's, it's actually pretty explicit, that they say that um, there's limited bandwidth that ICE and the government has to deport immigrants from the country, and that ICE only has so many beds under its control, and only has so many airlines that it can use to fly people out of the country, and that if they really wanted to reduce the pool of 10, 11 million immigrants in the country here who, who don't have uh, legal status, that the only way that they can do it is by raising the stakes where life becomes so uncomfortable that they decide to leave on their own accord. And I started seeing this when the Trump administration came in. Uh, I would go all over the state of Minnesota and everywhere, principals and teachers were telling me that the kids whose parents were not documented 
were terrified. Mm-hmm. And it was hurting their performance in school. And was just they're going to the nurse in the school or they're going to a clinic for anxiety because they knew that it was a very real possibility that their parents would be taken away. And they just knew the United States. That's all they knew. Right. Well, and it's also just what you just described, the 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 core of cruelty that's embedded in that sort of policy where you're waging psychological warfare on against people who many of whom have been here not just years, but a lot of them decades. Yeah. Because we have this tremendous backlog in our immigration And a courses. pillar of the community. Yeah. Yeah. They, so. they're, they're completely intertwined. They consider, themselves, <laughs> they consider themselves Americans because they've been here for so long. Their kids have been born here, so their children are actually American citizens. And then for the government to come in and to just create this sense of randomness that anybody here who doesn't have the right papers is is uh, subject to deportation. That under the Obama administration, Obama administration had started off with this very crude deportation policy, which was also Awful. very cruel, very cruel. But then by the end of the Obama administration, there was a sense that they'd constructed very clear priorities. So if you had committed a crime, you would be the priority for ICE. And you would and, if there was and a, like a real like a, a violent yeah, crime right, or something right, like right, that, right. as opposed to a a minor exactly. crime. Exactly. Okay. And in your article then we'll move on to because we got a lot to talk about here. Sessions was a big part of this. Everyone thinks of him as well not exactly a hero for not <laughs> unrecusing himself, but as uh, at least someone who was uh, <clears throat> beleaguered by a guy who's worse than him. Right. It, it just doesn't take a whole lot of uh, deep reading to see that Sessions was terrified of, of the demographic transformation of the country. And um, he, he spoke about wanting to protect uh, kind of a civilization and a culture. And uh, when he was a senator, uh, he was way to the right of I was, his caucus. I was a witness to that, of course. On immigration, (laughs) because we wrote an immigration reform bill in the Judiciary Committee in in 2013, Mm -hmm. and uh, it got 68 votes in the Senate, and the House never took it up. Yeah. Because they were going by the Hastert rule. Right. Right. If that bill had passed, then immigration, you'd you'd have Republicans being associated with immigration reform, with a with a sort of with a sort of amnesty, right? With giving people, and it would have taken a that path issue, to citizenship, citizenship. It would have taken, a, a it would long take, path. It would have taken that issue off the table, right? Right, and and I think it's arguable if that you could argue that if that bill had passed, uh, and, and and Donald Trump didn't have the issue of immigration to demagogue, it would have probably been much more difficult for him to have ever found a path to the presidency. That seems to be the only thing. Uh, that if you eliminated, then he wouldn't be president. Thanks, Comey. Thanks, Russia. You bastards. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash Wondery. 
Uh, so uh, you wrote this great book. I love this book, World uh, Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, which is great because we need another existential <laughs> threat. Uh, which... Listen, since I wrote that book, existential threats are everywhere. So uh, I want to get to the origin story of Silicon Valley, and I did not know this stuff. There is kind of a, a hippie libertarian thing uh, that pervades Silicon Valley, and it has its roots with this guy, Stuart Brand. So as a Grateful Dead fan, you mm-hmm. surely know that the the peninsula south of uh, San Francisco was this incredible confluence where you had both the Grateful Dead and LSD and the communes all getting invented, but it's also the place that gave us Apple Computer, the the PC, and the Internet. And I don't think you could have had either of those things without the other. The hippies had decamped in mass to communes, and they had an idea about how uh, they could use tools and technology to essentially liberate themselves from the curse of technology And itself. that's what you'll hear from... Uh, Zuckerberg and all these guys. Yeah, some variation of that. Some, so that this is a liberating thing and also will bring us everybody together. Right. You wouldn't have had um, the creativity and the uh, th- that infuses technology that allows for all of this innovation if you didn't have this hippie spirit. Uh, that still is there. Yeah. The hippie libertarian. Right. Well, so I think one of the strands is that this dream of creating oneness of creating this sense of wholeness of kind of tying the world together in the same spirit of the communes and also this idea that you can use technology to alter consciousness all that continues yeah. to to run yeah. through i mean it's it's, it it's true i mean it's like it's 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 you know lsd altered consciousness but then they started to like, this guy Stuart brand who we talked about who is the the major theorist of technology in this period in silicon valley goes to see video games played for the first time. And he says, holy cow, this is familiar. I'm watching these guys kind of transfixed and transformed into this altered state as they're sitting here playing with these games. And I think we we think about this, even Mark Zuckerberg, somebody like that who's pretty square, who I doubt has uh, dropped acid in his life, still thinks about the technology kind of having the same sort of Transformative power. Yeah, to transform consciousness. So that, that we're all one. Yeah. Uh, one and then we're a big community. The, making the globe a community, thereby uh, making countries like Myanmar uh, <laughs> uh, just paradise. Exactly. And it's kind of a beautiful, powerful dream. You can see how people yeah. get carried away with it. The idea that we could all be uh, stitched together into this one network and uh it's 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 something that has almost theological implications to it when you start to get carried away and these guys have are let's face it and i guess they have reason to be uh we're we're talking about sergey brin and uh larry page who did google bezos who Mm -hmm. invented amazon and uh zuckerberg they have grandiosity would you say that yeah I would. And and I guess why not? I mean, you're multi, multi, multi-billionaire because of something you invented. Yeah. Why wouldn't you be? But they have, like, some ambitions, for example, to defeat death. It's a small one. 
But I, I want to know what that looks like. It's evidently you have some, some scientists, some doctors and scientists get together and they, uh, and through technology, through the data <laughs> that you get, uh, figure out how to keep a human being alive forever. Is that the idea? That's the dream. That's the dream. Right. Well, and, and you can see how if you've created a machine that's able to answer every question seemingly that you enter into it, you begin to think, well, I solved this one big problem. I'm going to move on to conquering the next big problem. And so, uh, you know, there's it, other problems besides death. Uh, well, for example, is Social Security solvent? <laughs> <laughs> this would this would That's not help that. That's now, well, which which raises the question: If they did this, let's say they solve this, mm-hmm. who gets it? Is it just those guys, or is it? Do you have to like be CFO and then you're cut off? That below <laughs> CFO, I th- I don't know if they've thought all of this through because uh, one. You could live forever, but just get older, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm 68, and I feel a little diminishment of, of some of my powers. Uh, not not mental. I'm just getting smarter <laughs> and smarter. But, uh, you know, just uh, muscle mass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, my back is kind of hurting me. And I've talked to people who are older, and they say it just keeps getting worse. And I can't imagine, so let's say you're 110, then you're 120, and then you're 150. You may be living, but it just may be hell. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, there, you know, things start to get boring after a while. And if you're, if you're going on forever and ever doing the same thing uh, time and again. Well, that's my thought. Let's say, okay, so you're living, let's say, okay, now you're 220 years old. And uh, the world is taken over by a horrible, horrible dictator. And this uh, woman, this woman doesn't like you particularly. And so she decides we are going to put you in a capsule and we're going to send you to this galaxy that's a few galaxies away, about a uh, hundred million light years. And we think there's a planet there that might have life, and we need somebody to go there and check that out. That's going to be your job because you can live forever. So we're putting you in the capsule. There'll be no reading material, uh, no Internet. Uh, but we have this technology where we can feed you the same thing every day and keep you alive. And that's it. And we'll give you a journal. <laughs> and, you you know, dear journal... It's the year 2,865,978. I've been in this capsule for over 2 million years. <laughs> and I am, I'm just going nuts. Yes. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound uh, like the happiest uh, immortality I've ever heard about. Yeah. So I'm going to talk to those guys. I got to get a meeting with them. <laughs> <laughs> and saying, think about it, think this through. Anyway, we, I've just uh, alerted everybody to some of the downsides of this. But I want to talk to you because I want my uh, audience to know uh, that you were the editor-in-chief of uh, The New Republic. 
right. that you were on the, the ground floor in Slate, too, right out of college, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, in Seattle. You went to Seattle. It was owned by Microsoft at that point, and so I, I drove out to Seattle, and uh, Michael Kinsley had just started what was going to be the first kind of mega internet magazine, the first real serious foray of, of an old-school mainstream media person going into internet publishing, and it was a blast. Um, and, and now it's a monopoly. It's the only uh, place people get their news. <laughs> okay, but it's still around and it's still great. I yeah. mean, it still yeah. has great people. So and <clears throat> you, so you did New Republic, and uh, now you're at the Atlantic, and you've written books. But uh, you talk in World uh, Without Mind about your experience at New Republic, and it's bought by one of Zuckerberg's roommates. Yeah, from Harvard, who, who was employee number three of Facebook, and he became. Fantastically wealthy. When he bought the New Republic, I think everybody said that he was worth about seven hundred million dollars. He was twenty-eight years old. What's his name? Chris Hughes. Yeah, Chris Hughes. Okay, so Chris Hughes kind of went in one way and then started to say, you know, we want to get clicks, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. He he lost his way. Um, that he'd come, he come. He came in with kind of noble intentions, and then at a certain point, he started to panic, and he said you know what, we need to turn ourselves into a business. He wanted to prove himself as a businessman. And so the only way that he could see to do that was to leverage his knowledge of Facebook. And so we uh, installed a data guru on our site, and um, we were instructed to come up with what's called snackable content. And so that's, you know, as opposed to- So this to, is like he does a 180 on himself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and I think even he <laughs> even he, even he, he would admit that now. Um, and and let, tell me about Chartbeat now, because yeah. I think this says so much about all journalism now, almost all journalism. Yeah. So what, what was Chartbeat or what is Chartbeat? Chartbeat is, uh, it's a meter that measures how many clicks any site or any given piece of content, if we dare use the, the terrible word, is getting at any given moment. So if you walked into the Washington Post, you would see uh, their own version of Chartbeat hanging up on giant TV screens that hover over the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, 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 okay. um, and it's and so, telling you constantly how, yeah, you're, yeah, how you're doing. Yeah. And, and, it, and uh, like, like all these things, uh, it's kind of structured to addict you. Um, it's it's basically an addictive piece of technology giving you instructive instructions on how you could produce addictive content for your readers. And so I would wake up in the morning and I would look at this uh, this the the chart beat app to see how the New Republic was doing. If the meter was going in a way that promised like it would be a good day or if it would be a bad traffic day. And I would check constantly over the course of the day because like like, like all kids now you're the you're the editor-in-chief of yeah. the new republic and you're spending a lot of time yeah checking on chart beat like all kids who were not terribly popular in high school i just wanted to be liked and i wanted to be popular and also journalists are constantly told that we're working in this imperiled profession and that the only way to uh have journalism survive is to make it into a, a functional business. And the way that we were told to make it into a functional business was to produce pieces that got lots of traffic because that would drive advertising revenue. And, and that so, has just made journalism better and better. <laughs> right. And so um, <laughs> I think the most important term uh, in journalism over the course of the last decade is trending. 
that Ooh. yeah are you trending are you trending <laughs> and so you would um on facebook you there's there's oh thank and, god i'm trending <laughs> oh i feel so good i'm trying oh no wait a minute that's not me oh i'm an idiot i'm not trending oh not today um oh. maybe some other day <laughs> wait a minute no 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 it's me i'm trending Okay, so in other words, they're they're looking at whether you're trending, and so now you write this about what's happened to journalism. You say higher brow publications have no guilt about tossing off articles on these trending subjects, so long as they dress them up a bit with a pocket square of academic pretension or a scarf of argumentative cleverness. The results are. Highly derivative. It's just describing every friggin' thing I read <laughs> all the time. I mean, they will go to, uh, I mean, Epstein has got to be the guy being clicked on right now, and there will be one after another of these, and the New York Times will do ones, and they'll be someone will have a viewpoint that's a little bit smarter than someone else mm-hmm. and uh or have a different take yeah or you know just have a little thing to dress it up as you were saying you you quote uh, josh tolposky who is the founder of vox and he says everything <laughs> looks the same reads the same and seems to be competing for the same eyeballs the tremendous irony of it all is that the internet was supposed to promise us diversity and pluralism and if you had a strange niche interest you'd be able to get attention for that strange niche niche influence and it would be creating this tremendous pluralism in the world but really the opposite has happened uh, in we, terms of the mainstream yeah, media yeah we get the this we get this incredible conformism right that you mm-hmm. and it's exactly what you describe where the new york times writes a story about topic a all the things that it reports get kind of slightly jumbled up and recycled by other publications and there's this this samey sameness and there's also this herd factor the other i think crucial term is filter bubble which is that social media tends to sort us and so you get sorted into your ideological tribe and so if you're a, so there is so if you are interested in being racist you'll, you'll your interest will be catered to exactly and, okay. and, and but even within that <laughs> that's an interest but, 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 and even within that racist bubble mm-hmm. you're essentially getting the same thing over and over again um, you, you you get this echo chamber, and if the Russians want to target those people, right, they can, right. Or they if can. they want to uh, target African Americans who have uh, obviously shown an interest in uh, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. they would send them stuff about Hillary and her thing about super predators. Yeah, from nineteen ninety four, right? Because manipulation is the very essence of what a site like Facebook is. Well, the big manipulation is to keep you on Facebook. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because, all right, so what what happens? What happens precisely? That they amass all this data on you. What is data? Data is a totally bloodless word, but it's really this cartography of the inside of your head. It's this portrait of your psyche. 
and um, they study everything that you read and everything that you buy, and they know your friend network. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You hear things like uh, the amount of data that we have doubles or triples every year. And the data isn't about, like, how human cells fight cancer. They're about how many people who bought a Fitbit and a scale also responded to an ad for Weight Watchers. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's that's 99.999% of the new data that we have. Right. Well, of course, I mean, so what these companies want to do is to get you to buy things. They're, they're machines that are tied in with advertising and that's that's where the revenue comes from right. and and what does the data do when you can scan every email <laughs> you've ever written via gmail or you 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 start to put together a picture of the user of the person and you start to be able to figure out the things that give them anxiety or the things that give them pleasure and it becomes the basis for even more effective and sophisticated manipulation okay now uh does the lizard brain uh, come in the play here? So you said fear, yeah, or what brings you uh, joy? Yep. And sometimes the fear button is the right one, right? Right. I mean, to, it, to, it, to hook someone. Yeah, and so journalists—that's journalism. That's the world that I know best here. And I look at journalism and I see all the ways in which it's constantly trying to exploit people's fear. So you look at something like parenting. You're on Facebook and you're um, in that set. You constantly getting articles saying, you know, you're being a bad parent because of <laughs> X, Y, or Z reason. And health is another because classic they, example uh, of this. That, like, you know, everything gives you cancer, makes you fat, and here's how you can avoid it. It's usually based on some thin read of distorted science or social science that is being hyped and sensationalized in order to get people to click. And you see the patterns if you're a media organization or somebody trying to exploit this system. You see the things that freak people out most consistently because the things that freak people out most consistently are going to be the ones that you get you the traffic and therefore the advertising money. So basically the model here is to divide people and especially to make people angry and and despondent. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's really, a, it's kind of amazing that Donald Trump flourished in this world. <laughs> yeah. That, right? Yeah. Oh, I want to read something in your book because uh, this kind of talks about how I think big media uh, was helpful uh, in, uh, in Trump being elected. And you write this, and I thought it was a beautifully written uh, paragraph. Donald Trump is the culmination of the era. He understood how more than at any moment in recent history, media need to give the public what it wants, a circus that exploits subconscious tendencies and biases. Even if media disdained Trump's outrages, they built him up as a character and a plausible candidate. For years, media pumped Trump's theories about President Obama's foreign birth into circulation, even though they were built on dunes of crap. It gave endless attention to his initial smears of immigrants, even though media surely understood how those provocations stoked an atmosphere of paranoia and hate. Once Trump became a plausible candidate, media had no choice but to cover him. 
But media had carried him to that point. Stories about Trump yielded the sort of traffic that pleased the gods of data and benefited the bottom line. That is, I mean, that's a big part of the story of Donald Trump. It's also, to give him credit, he was incredibly interesting to watch and entertaining, right? Yeah, and and of course he was able to do that before the Internet, that he exploited tabloid culture in New York City. But I think that's that's actually the telling thing. It's the way in which the rest of media has shifted in the direction of tabloids. Yeah, that that that's what uh, you know. Uh, it's part of what happens in this click economy is that there, it, it, it converges with the New York Post. So, how much of of news is consumed on social media? In other words, how much of our news do people get on Facebook and Google? I'm a little bit rusty on this, but I think it's it's something like 60% of Americans uh, say that they get their news primarily through social media and that the largest percentage of that is through Facebook. I think one of the terrible things about the news feed on mm-hmm. Facebook, which is this, it looks like a reverse chronological set of things that have been posted by your friends. But of course, it's a list that's been sorted by Facebook in its algorithm for you as for a, you as an individual yeah, in order to keep you oh i want to ask you about yeah. algorithm the word algorithm yeah do does google have an algorithm or does it have lots of algorithms i mean it really has lots of algorithms okay because sometimes you know they uh, google changed its algorithm yeah and i'm going like there there's one algorithm Right. But what you're saying is I mean what they're really saying what what, the, what they're saying is that Google Google restructured its system. So uh, Google makes it is constantly twisting the dials of the knobs that determine what appears at the top of a search result. And Google will sometimes make a decision for the sake of its own traffic or for the sake of its own business or for the sake of um, trying to do a better job getting users the best information mm-hmm. what it deems to be the best information it'll make some sort of switch and and people are always trying to game the system that there are tricks that you can use to get higher up in a search result and that there are entire industries that exist uh, consultants who you can pay lots of money to to try to get you higher up in a search result and so when google changes its its algorithm what people are saying is that google will make some sort of sweeping change to its rankings um, to try to knock down the people who are exploiting it or... Mm-hmm. But it, it's like Adnan, can you tweak the paranoid algorithm? Is, <laughs> is, there any, is that what's going on? I, not with Google. But... <laughs> no, no, not with Google, but on Facebook or something. Yeah, Facebook, um, Facebook makes decisions like that. I mean, I don't think they would say uh, the paranoid one. I think that they would say... You know, uh, we're the p- paranoid part of this algorithm. Well, it's what what, what happens is is that <laughs> the, the data the data shows that there's a certain thing that that you know it's it's picking up patterns and it's using it's taking those patterns and using it as the basis for what the news feed shows in the future. And, and everybody it's, 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 is everybody's unique. Yeah, 
but what what Facebook has is the ability it you know a lot of this happens almost organically because the machines are learning and the machines they take results which then inform future results but Facebook has this god's eye view on what people are reading and they could tweak that to to penalize certain certain genres that it sees kind of constantly ascending in its system but it doesn't do it because it sees that people click on those sorts of things sound the gifting panic alarm we've all been there you need to find the perfect gift you have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start relax now you can use gift mode on etsy gift mode takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life, or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Okay, uh, you, you mentioned search results. And uh, Google, that's where people search for stuff. And uh, there's this question about whether Google sometimes um, uh, favors its own right. stuff instead yeah. of being fair, right? It's, it's something that's been investigated by European uh, antitrust authorities, been investigated by our own Federal Trade Commission and um, studied by a lot of academics. And there's, I mean, there's there's some pretty clear examples where, I mean, Yelp, Yelp. is- Yelp is, was is, the big one. It's the big one. That's and, the, those are restaurant reviews. Right. And so Yelp was this thriving business that when you typed in a restaurant's name, it would be the first thing that would spring up um, on your Google search. And Google saw this and they said, hey, this is a pretty cool business. We should get in it. And hey, because we control the search results, we can put ourselves ahead of Yelp, which is exactly And we had a hearing on this. And I'm going to play a a little bit of this for you. Um, This Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, testified before the Judiciary Committee. And uh, can we play that? But then uh, the ranking member ask you, well, when that's not the case, when you're not putting out the answer that people want, when you're not doing that, do all your rankings reflect an unbiased algorithm? And you said, after a little hesitation, I believe so. That seemed like a pretty fuzzy answer to me coming from the chairman. If you don't know, who does? I, I, I really, that really bothers me. Because that's the crux of this. Quote, it is impossible for any of Google's competitors to be displayed as prominently as Google itself, even if Google's own algorithm rates them higher. Do you think that's a fair um, characterization? I generally disagree with... Generally. Is Google still using Yelp's content to drive business to Google Places? Uh, as far as I know, not. As far as you know. Yeah, he was... A pr- those are pretty fuzzy answers, don't you think? I thought it was a, a model of moral courage and backbone. 
I don't know what that was. That's not a good. <laughs> that's not good testimony. W- wouldn't you go? Yeah, <laughs> or, or something like that. Wouldn't? Why wouldn't you do that? I don't get people when they testify. Well, Mark Zuckerberg, remember when he testified? The Senate, your co- your old colleagues get hammered a lot for doing a terrible job asking. Well, they they did. Yeah, and, and um, Zuckerberg, that was embarrassing, and I mean, in more than one case. Well, it's also true that you know they, they ask embarrassing questions of uh, of bankers and other people people too, and yet we find ways to to regulate those industries and pass legislation about those industries. And I think with tech, there is this sense, uh, kind of more than with other parts of the American economy, that tech is so complicated that kind of uh, you know fuddy duddy. Uh, representatives of the people will never be able to grasp it adequately enough in order to pass. Too bad Orrin Hatch had to retire because he was <laughs> beginning to roll up his sleeves on this. What What would you like to see? I mean, this is an antitrust issue. It used to be if the consumer doesn't pay a higher price, then it's not harming anything. You know, I see companies developing something, a, a new product, uh, a new service, taking a risk, investing their time, their effort, uh, their capital, and uh, they they want to sell it on, on Amazon. They go to sell it on Amazon, and it works. And Amazon then goes like, you know what? That works. Why don't we do it? And we'll just do exactly what they do. And they do. Now... To me, what that does is disincentivizes doing the kind of work that the people who took the risk do. Yeah. So that's a harm yeah. to stuff we, we just don't know whether it would exist or not if, if there was some regulation on this damn thing. Right. Yeah. It w- and let's go back. If we t- if we if we hopped into the, the the antitrust time machine, antitrust in this country was not just about protecting the consumer, and it was not just about achieving the lowest prices and the most efficiency. It had a more holistic approach to to what it, it intended to protect. Was it competitors? For it example. was it was well <laughs> not competitors, but producers. That if I. If I'm a journalist and I write things and I'm a magazine or I'm a magazine, I should have some sort of protection against the monopolists who come in and steal my uh, my advertising. Not because it's bad for the consumers per se, but because we we um, we wanted to protect a, a plurality. Okay, of now profe- explain yeah. how uh, they're stealing your advertising or the press, the, the a newspaper's advertising. Right. So stealing is probably um, uh, the wrong word because they didn't do anything illegal. But what they did do is they came in and they created they got a monopoly where they because they collected data on the people on readers, um, they were able to go to advertisers and say, look, you're spending you're spending this 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 astonishingly large sum of money on buying a full page ad in The New York Times. And it would be much, much more effective for you to spend that money on Google, where we can target consumers with these these ads, either in the search results or on web pages, and so and and that's what's happened. That's, that's what's that's happened. uniformly happened. Yeah, and so 
newspaper advertising and newspapers collapsed in very short order where um, we had massive contractions in the number of reporters in the country. And some of it's hard to see because the New York Times is still a ro- like a very robust, excellent newspaper. The Washington Post is still a very, very good newspaper. But um, and maybe even the Minneapolis Star Tribune is a good newspaper. But there are a lot of mid-sized cities and small towns in this country. There are plenty, have- plenty of layoffs of um, very good political reporters um, at the Star Tribune. Yeah. So there's still um, there's still some accountability at at the national level. But um, we know that a lot of bullying behavior and corruption in this country takes place at the local level. And without newspaper reporters um, hawking over that, watching it very carefully, it potentially goes unchecked. Who's going to uncover it? New York Times, you know, does not have the capacity to go to every midside city that doesn't Even have Even though newspaper. they have an yeah. incredible amount of resources, the New York Times. Yeah. Um, I like to think of this podcast as the daily without the New York Times resources. <laughs> so I don't know enough about this subject. No. Uh, so, um, okay, so uh, that's anti-competitive. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, are, are more people getting kind of, is, is there a movement toward not just looking at the antitrust implications of all this, but at, at, at doing something about it? You know, actually, if you looked at the Trump administration, it actually reflects a turn where the guy who runs the antitrust division of the Justice Department has started to talk about the problem of big tech. And right now it's just talk. And you've got a lot of Democrats running for president who have started to talk about big tech, but it's really just talk. Uh, The uh, antitrust subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee is calling Executives from Google, Facebook, and Amazon. I was on Amazon. that subcommittee. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I sometimes was alone, like a Comcast, Time Warner cable. It was like ten at night. My wife goes, "It says here that Comcast wants to buy Time Warner cable." And I go, "Well, that's ridiculous. They own, I don't know, two thirds." Of the broadband and the kind, you can't do that. And Comcast is really is against net neutrality. They've gone to court on that. You can't do that. And so I call up my legal counsel for the Judiciary Committee and I say, uh, Josh, uh, let's write a letter to the FCC and the and the DOJ, the Department of Justice, and uh, who have will be deciding on this. And let's get. A lot of net neutrality people on it. I couldn't get one damn Democrat. I couldn't get anybody. That's astonishing. It it was, and I went. It went fourteen months before I got. Uh, and it was just before it fell apart. I think the reason I got, I got like five names, and uh, that's when Bernie and um, Elizabeth Warren and uh, uh, Markey, I think, and uh, I remember it was Wyden. Joined it, but that only only after fourteen months, and this really does show the power that a company like Comcast had. Uh, Comcast had over a hundred lobbyists on the Hill, but 
and this is really interesting, there were other lobbyists mm-hmm. who were paid not to lobby the other side. Right. So it was like, um, you know, you're going to just stay on the bench. You've got your, your hired guns that are meant to go firing, and then you've got your hired guns that are just meant to stay quiet. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd meet with somebody, and someone would say, right, he's a lobbyist for Google, and i go, like, no, he isn't. I haven't. Well, he's just been paid not to <laughs> lobby for the other side. And I go, that's kind of it's kind of ugly, isn't it? And um, but it fell apart for the very reason, which was they would have had two thirds of the broadband in the country. The Midwest and Minnesota, in particular, has kind of a rich tradition of uh, taking on monopoly. I, I like to think I that was a lot of what I tried to do is just look at these huge companies and say, like, I, I don't think this is going to consolidating media, for example. I was in, I worked at NBC for a long time, and when Comcast tried to buy NBC, I think I was also the only one against it. And, uh, you know, Jeff Zucker at the time was president of NBC, and he came to my office, and I had just gotten there, and he said, this would be good for Lorne. Wow. Yeah, and I said, okay, but I don't represent Lorne. I'm senator from Minnesota, you see. And he, he immediately realized he kind of stepped. He's a smart man. Yeah. Stepped in it, yeah. Everything we just talked about, about uh, Trump Justice Department and presidential candidates talking about monopoly, it's a pretty big turn from recent American politics, right? That it, The antitrust felt like a lonely issue to you because it was a lonely issue, that there weren't very many people talking about it. From your insider kind of perspective, sitting up in, in the Senate and being on the Judiciary Committee, why was it that people really didn't care about these issues? I don't know. You have to pay attention to a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Comcast was a big donor to the Democratic Party. The Republican Party loves big companies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's really hard to see them uh, go like, you guys want to merge? Oh, that's that's great, you know. And on that one, you know, um, Bob Casey is from Pennsylvania. Comcast is in Philadelphia. There's a Comcast Tower there, so you know he represents those those people who work there. So it was impossible to get people. We're also just coming off this era where um, look, the Obama administration was pretty friendly with with tech. Right. And, well, Google um, didn't Google do the, you know, data for his campaign. Yeah. And and Google executives visited the White House more than any other public company. But and it's not just it's not just the Obama administration. I mean, this goes back for a couple generations where um, where both parties basically were inclined to let markets run their course. They wanted to have a light footprint when it came to stepping in and provincially stifling innovation. And so uh, we we had this rich tradition of antitrust that kind of goes back to the founding. Um, Jefferson wanted to write uh, uh, anti-monopoly into the, the Constitution. The Sherman Antitrust Act, which was passed in the late 
19th century is incredibly broad. It says that uh, it's a law against monopoly. And over time, we just started to constrict those laws. uh, But but those were aggressively enforced. For a good long time in the 20th century, they were aggressively enforced. Um, Up through, in Republican administrations, aggressively enforced them as well. It was only until Ronald Reagan came to power that they started very quickly and precipitously fall out of favor. Was it was it Reagan or was it Bork? I mean, was it? Uh, well, it, Bork was the it was the intellectual godfather, but it was it was when. Oh wait a minute! I was I was <laughs> the intellectual godfather too. <laughs> the intellectual godfather too. The intellectual godfather three. It's like a whole franchise. Yeah, intellectual godfather three was. Not up to one and two. <laughs> um, I tried to get out, and they pulled me back. Yeah, in. one and two were unbelievable. Jesus Christ, was there? I, can you uh, now? Does somebody own that? I mean, who owns that? Is that this? Uh, well, it must be the, the motion picture studio, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, well, that's easy to look up. You know, we can look that up on Google or the Internet Movie Database, which is owned by Amazon. Oh. You didn't know that. No. Huh. Well, and then I got a choice, you see? <laughs> I got a choice. Well, I. you know what? I have no problem anymore. Your article, it'll be either a cover story. <laughs> and, and uh, Which for, means it, 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 I did good. Which means you did well. What would be on the cover, do you know? You don't, don't know. know. I don't know. I don't, I don't have any control over that. You don't? I mean, do they go like, uh, Frank... Uh, do you like this one or you like this one? No, no. It's, really? After it's after it's done, so that I can't complain. That's not your job. Yeah. Your job is to yeah. write exactly, and, and you do that better than uh, I think. Well, let's not make you better you do, <laughs> than everybody you else. Know, let's make this you... compliment was really nice until you started to back away from it. <laughs> well, no, I just uh, one of the best, Thank one you. of the very, very best, and, and again, this is a thing. Like if it just. You can go back right now, if you're uh, listening to this, and read the Manafort cover story from the uh, Atlantic Monthly. What a weird guy. So strange. Such a Baroque tale. And, um, uh, but yet, it's kind of reflective of uh, the city that we live in. I mean, that Paul Manafort, it was kind of an only in Washington story. Well, he and, and Stone, I guess, put yeah. together the first... Campaign and lobbying group, right, right? Right, that he and Stone helped rewrite the laws for um, how lobbying was done in Washington, what was acceptable behavior. Then he started lobbying on behalf of uh, these despots. Right, so you had... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would. It he was would, kind of his specialty, right? He was better at it than anyone. He would take, um, he'd take your... Uh, your, your your murderous goonish dictator, and then figure out how to repackage them as a later latter day Thomas Jefferson, and then bring them to Washington and, and bring them to celebrate it. Exactly, exactly. And there were lots of plenty of conservative think tanks that who's were the angle um, Jonas Savimbi. Yeah, like a mass murderer, right? Yeah, terrible, terrible <laughs> criminal. <laughs> oh God. Um, and and uh, w- one of the fascinating things I don't know how you found this, but. Um, it's it's he has a couple daughters right yep. and one sends an email to the other saying we have blood money yeah 
Yeah. Our money is blood money. Yeah. Uh, well, their text messages. Uh, well, texts. Okay. Yeah, they, which were, which were um, hacked by uh, Ukrainian activists because uh, Manafort had spent a, more than a decade in Ukraine working for Viktor Yanukovych, who was the also wouldn't surprise you to learn uh, kind of a murderous uh, authoritarian right, sure. character and. Um, he got thrown. He ended up having to seek exile in Moscow because there was a revolution. Does, in does he have a nice place in Russia? You know, it's not bad. He's okay. Kind of, I would. He had a better place in Kiev. Wasn't uh, that was that like some opulent, crazy? Yeah, yeah. And Manafort wanted to live like that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's part of the theme of your story. Right. Is that, that he, he, went he started hanging? Yeah, yeah. He started hanging out with those guys and go like, why can't I have? A fifty million dollar home in the Hamptons. So one of the one of, <laughs> one of the great stories from um, the Yanukovych Palace is that he goes into exile, and um, the revolutionaries storm the palace, and they see some bubbles percolating up in the art of the man made lake outside his palace, and they fish them out, and they're actual documents that relate to um, uh, the lawyer Greg Craig, who was partnered. With Paul Manafort, and so they fished them out, and that became the basis for. Oh, no, some... it was like yeah, it, it was it became part of the the paper trail that ended up uh, dooming those guys. Uh, we're talking uh, the Frank Four, and uh, we, we, we're changing. I'm, I'm calling an audible here. We're just going to do your entire career. <laughs> uh, and no, uh, thank you so much. And I know you got to go back and and work on on the uh, what I'm pretty confident will be uh, the cover story <laughs> on uh, on the subject we've been talking about today. But specifically, Amazon Jeff Bezos. I uh, there's a Whole Foods across the street from uh, our apartment here in Washington. We live two blocks from two of our grandchildren, so we're here a lot. I, I have Amazon Prime, you mm-hmm. know, and I have it on my phone. You have a thing, a barcode on your phone, and you put it up to the thing, and you save money uh, on some premiums. I, I think I saved some today on uh, blueberries. Okay, on blueberries today. And it was like 60 cents I saved. No, 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 no. It was like three bucks or something. And I always say this to the cashier. I go like, well, that's three bucks Jeff Bezos won't get his hands on. <laughs> and what's interesting is the reaction. <laughs> because usually, why would they know what I'm talking about? But every, you know, a lot of times they do. And it gets a laugh. Or a flicker of terror. As <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they're taping this. You remember the, this is on video. Uh, no, so... Um, if you're listening to the podcast and, and you're a cashier at, at Whole Foods, say, I heard that on your podcast. <laughs> well, like, will that get an additional discount no. for podcast listeners? Uh, getting a laugh is its own reward. <laughs> Believe me, that's that's the biggest reward you can give anyone is to laugh at their joke. That's, in my family. In my family. Um, so uh, thank you and good luck with this thing. And uh, been, a, been a delight. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Leo Kotke for this uh, beautiful, beautiful theme. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
If you like the Al Franken podcast, you can listen to all episodes ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. How much do you really know about black history? Like, really, really know. Wondery's new podcast, Black History For Real, weaves black history's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History For Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.